Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. everyone. Thank you for joining us today on Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast, where we talk about all things related to the Asian American Christian life and living out Asian American Christian faith. My name is Jeanette Oak, and I serve as Associate Professor of New Testament here at Fuller Seminary. And it's a special honor to host this particular season, season eight, because I'm a biblical scholar who loves the church and who wants to see how to bridge the distance between the church and the academy. So this season focuses on the Bible and asks questions like, why does biblical scholarship matter for the church? And how are biblical scholars shaped by and do their work for the church? How do they help challenge and mature the church? Uh, to help explore such questions, I've invited my friend, Dr. Nijay Gupta. But first, let me tell you some more about him. Dr. Nijay Gupta is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, which is in Illinois. He's a passionate and gifted teacher and a very busy writer. In addition to writing numerous academic articles and book chapters, He's authored a slew of books, and I'm just naming some from the recent five years or so, including Paul and the Language of Faith, which was published by Erdman's in 2020, A Theological Introduction to Philippians, uh, which was published also in 2020, A Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies, also in 2020, and I've used this for my class and students have been very positive in their response to it, The Lord's Prayer, 2018, A Commentary on First and Second Thessalonians in 2016, and your most recent book just came out in September 2022 called 15 New Testament Words of Life, A New Testament Theology for Real Life by Zondervan. But if that wasn't enough, Nijay has a new book that is about to come out called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. That, that's coming out in 2023 by IVP, as well as a second edition of the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters, also coming out in 2023 by, by IVP Press, which you co-edited with Lynn Kohick and Scott McKnight. Nijay, you're an active blogger, so you can check out Crux Sola blog, um, a preacher, a podcast guest, who I see as being very intentional about making biblical scholarship accessible, affordable, and available to many, including those in the church. So thank you so much for joining us today on Centering. It's always great to see you. Hi, Jeanette. Thanks so much. Well, I have to ask you this. How do you write so much? Like, Technically, give give us like a day in the life of Nijay Gupta, the professor and writer. Oh, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I get asked that sometimes, and you know, it's not enough, I guess, to say writing's a passion. I guess it's a passion of a lot of people. But um, you know, I would say, you know, Jeanette, you know, you know, I know each other. You, you might not know that I'm an introvert, so I like to spend a lot of time by myself in my office, which I do, or at home, which I'm here all day, every day. I think it's just more, uh, I was just talking to Beth Stovell, I, I know you know Beth uh, from here and there, uh, who's a colleague at Ambrose University, and she was, we were dialoguing about this yesterday. I think it's like, I'm just a really curious person, okay. and I process my curiosity through writing. There's two tricks to kind of my um, writing obsession. One is, I try to write on what I'm teaching on. And, uh, and then the other ones to try to teach on what I'm writing on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how, how, you know, I know that Northern likes that, but I don't know to what degree they know that I'm doing that all the time. For example, I'm going to be teaching a hermeneutics course in the spring. So I'm like, why not write on hermeneutics? You know, I try to combine everything I'm doing as much as I can 
But I would just say, you know, I spend three, four hours a day writing. That means I have to sacrifice some other things. You know, one of my good friends, his name's Lauren Kearns. You may have met Lauren when you're visiting Portland, but he was the director of doctor ministry program at Portland Seminary where I used to work. And we, we would work together a lot. We had offices next to each other. We had a motto, which is work hard, play hard. That means I'm not going to take breaks when I'm working and socialize unless I plan those socializing breaks. Okay. So um, be pretty, you have to be pretty protective. You do. You do. And, you know, I, everybody's different, but I have word count goals or I have research notes goals, um, all those kinds of things. So I, you know, I plan out every half hour of every day. That doesn't mean I don't have fun. It doesn't mean I don't deviate from the schedule. But um, if I'm going to get it, writing is a top priority in my career and in my life. Different people write at different levels. Some people write one book every five to 10 years. You know, some people write more. To me, it's it's a really big part of what I do. I will say, and I don't think I've shared this with very many people, uh, I've, I have some health problems, which make it hard for me to do a lot of things. Okay. But writing is something I can't do. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm just not able to do because of illness and unpredictability of when I'll get ill um, yes. and some of the limitations there. So uh, writing is something I can do anywhere at any time. That's kind of a... I think the Lord has really opened that up to me as something I can control. And that's that's a big part of my appreciation for that. Yeah, but you also seem to be able to synthesize a lot and juggle various plates, um, spinning plates, it feels like. Because you're writing a book on women. You're writing a book on uh, Paul. And I think you're writing a book on writing. Oh, you wrote that, a book. Yeah, on yeah, I wrote a book. Another on book on writing. You read it, yeah. <laughs> which I read. And so that those are not necessarily always overlapping, but I mean, of course there's overlap. Yeah. But so you're able to seemingly hold multiple projects at the same time. And publications come out, you know, when they come out. It's not always when you're finished. That's right. What have you been up to lately? Or <laughs> is there a biblical text among the many that has been exciting you lately? Yeah. You know, I'll just confess, you know. Three, two or three years ago, I kind of hit my midlife crisis. We're probably around the same age. And, um, you know, I had shingles. You know, uh. I got shingles when I was in my late 30s. But even after that, just, you know, kind of a, a domino effect of health problems and um, just your typical, you know, what am I doing kind of issues. And that led to me thinking more about holistic health and wellness, especially for people in the caring industry, which includes pastors and to some degree professors, if you think yes. of your job that way. And I've been just leaning a lot into just health, wellness, thinking of salvation less in terms of kind of, you know, get out of jail, get into heaven free card and more mm -hmm. of how the spirit wants to kind of vivify us day to day. So along those lines, a text, if I'm invited to talk to pastors, especially in the last year, I've been using Philippians chapter four, verses four to nine, I think. And I actually wrote my own translation for a project. So if you wouldn't mind, I'll read it and then yeah. I'll talk through why it's given me energy. So if you're looking at your own Bible, this will sound a little bit strange because it's my kind of my, my paraphrase. Celebrate in the Lord always. I repeat, celebrate. Let all people know that you are gentle and generous. The Lord is near. Don't be troubled. Instead, mm -hmm. let God know your requests, which you make with a thankful heart as you offer up prayers and petitions frequently. Mm -hmm. Peace from God, greater than any mind, 
will care after your hearts and thoughts in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, my dear brothers and sisters, truth, nobility, justice, perfection, excellence, the spectacular, whatever showcases virtue and is worthy of respect, let your mind dwell on such things. Insomuch as you learned and received and heard and saw such things from me, so you should do them as well, and the God of peace will be with you. So when I was translating this, I tried to get out of Christian speak and kind of old-timey King Jamesy language. So I was thinking, whatever's worthy, whatever is honorable, you know, all that stuff. I thought, how would we say it today? And that relates to kind of the 50 New Testament Words of Life book, is how, how would we actually talk about this today? So I tried to pick words that are within our modern vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And it was just really striking to hear Paul talk about nobility perfection excellence the spectacular because i used to think of this as a virtue list it's often talked about as a virtue list it's not actually a virtue list one scholar talks about it as an a christian aesthetic hmm. um and so very abstract yeah they're abstract and they're not necessarily related to morality as much as our appreciation for things that are excellent the highest order Yeah, that's right. And so it's interesting because Paul's writing to people that are kind of stressed out and I'm kind of a stress case myself. And so to hear Paul say, meditate on something that's excellent, you know, meditate on the spectacular. When I work with pastors, when I work with students, I think this really grabs them because we don't always think that the New Testament writers have an appreciation for beauty and how much beauty plays into healthy Christian theology, healthy Christian formation. And so something I've been just pondering and reflecting reflecting on is, you know, post-pandemic or, or kind of in this new phase of the pandemic and all the stuff that's going on economically, you know, pastors are burned out, as you know, caregivers, leaders, missionaries, uh, they're burned out, nurses, doctors, and it might not change. You know what I mean? We might, life might still be hard over the next 20, 30 years. So what resources can we draw from scripture? And I just love how tenderhearted Paul is here where he just says things like, let people know you're gentle and generous. The Lord is near. Don't be troubled. I mean, these are theological things. They're also emotionally weighted. That's kind of been changing how I look at Paul's theology in a kind of more holistic way. Wow. That's one of the examples, Nijay, of how I feel like you're really able to take a biblical text and not water down, but just make it accessible Hmm. because of your deep study in the text. And, you know, uh, you, what did you celebrate? I mean, it's a little different yeah. than rejoice in the Lord, but yeah. celebrate has a different kind of sense. It's something that you more actively do outward, like you share it with other people. I, try, I tried to use terminology that is familiar to us because, as you know, you know, the, the, the Greek word for rejoice, it's, 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 it's common. It's common Greek. It's common language of the people. And so I had a few options of mine when as I was thinking about how to translate. One was party which could convey the wrong thing. Uh, Another is cheers, like salutations, which also could convey the wrong thing. So celebrate just felt like, okay, we have a catering company nearby to where I live and it's called celebrate. I just thought, okay, this is just exactly how we say if we get a promotion at work or if you, you know, if your stocks are going up, which isn't happening currently, but if they were, you would say celebrate. And so I, I wanted to capture that in, in the way that I look at these texts. And also, you know, you really emphasize the gentleness and generosity. I mean, in, through, in your translation, let people know you're gentle and generous. Yeah. And I think those words for pastors, for scholars in our very polarized times, 
it's just, it seems undervalued gentleness and generosity yeah. financially and in spirit. Yeah, this was a tif- this was a difficult word to translate. The Greek word is epia case, and one of my favorite translations is magnanimous. Hmm. That's big, yeah. which means a, a largeness of spirit. You know, I don't know if you remember the movie Shawshank Redemption, which is one of my favorite. Of movies, course, but, I do. But Andy Dufresne is. I hope I'm not spoiling for anybody, but you you surely should have been seen out it for a while now. now, and there's a lot of other things to watch, so I think it's okay. So Still Andy Dufresne is this white collar criminal. He didn't actually do it, just to, just to clarify. But and he's you know in prison trying to make the best of it, and he's able to make some deals with the with the prison guards and the warden to have a day outside where they're doing some work outside, which they don't normally do, and to be able to provide beer for the work crew. And this all happened through Andy and, and they offered him a beer and he said, no, he just wants to sit back and enjoy them and watch or in, and watch and enjoy them, drink the beer. And the narrator, Morgan Freeman says, Andy was magnanimous. And mm. it's that. So what that's conveying is that sense of just preoccupation with the other person. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out, okay, gentle, meaning I'm going to be patient with the other person because I'm focused on that and generous. I think about that with our kids. I know you're a parent, I'm a parent. And, you know, we're often required to be magnanimous <laughs> because, oh, Lord, because we, 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 we're caring for them. Yeah. And so that takes a certain frame of mind to be in a position of saying, let's talk about you. I want to know more about you. Mm, yeah, so good. I want to know more about you, actually, EJ. Can you tell <laughs> us? Can you tell us about your journey toward becoming a biblical scholar? Because I believe you were not raised in a Christian family. That, that's that. right. Yeah. So this could be a good transition into kind of some of my stories in Asian American as well. Um, my parents came from India to the United States in the early 1970s. I was born in the late 70s. Born and raised in Ashland, Ohio, North Central Ohio. Wow. Halfway between Cleveland and Columbus. And my parents are Hindu. They're still Hindu. Um, I have two older brothers, and um, so I grew up in a slightly more than nominal Hindu family. My mom is kind of on and off devout. Um, my dad is not very. And so I didn't learn a whole lot about Hinduism, but I grew up with some what I would say are kind of superstitions and kind of family practices that we conducted rituals weekly, but then also going to temple and things like that for holidays. Diwali, happy Diwali, which just recently Diwali. happened. Yes. And it was in high school. So I, so growing up, I actually didn't know a lot about Christianity. I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't know Easter was a Christian holiday mm-hmm. until well, I was se- really 17. it's not presented as such in, uh, <laughs> at Walmart and Target. No, that's exactly right. And I had only been to church a handful of times before high school because of sleepovers at a friend's house. And then I went to church with them or some big youth group event somewhere and, um, you know, didn't think much of it. And then my brother became a Christian, the middle brother, and he uh, in college and he started taking me to church. Uh, when he would come home from college on the weekends every now and again. And I just looked up to him and I just appreciated that he was uh, interested in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, and we could talk about this, Jeanette, just from an Asian uh, American perspective, but I love my parents dearly. I think they put a lot, I think the Asian culture put a lot of pressure on me to to be successful as a student. Mm -hmm. And some of my health problems combined with just some of my differences of interest 
I like to tell people that, you know, Asians and my my family history are meant to be good tennis players, which I was terrible at tennis, <laughs> um, and good at math and science. And those were two subjects I really struggled with. I was I was more of the drama, humanities, choir kid. And so I just didn't really fit in in my family. My brother, one of them is a surgeon, the other is a math teacher turned superintendent kind of position. So I just didn't fit in. My interests were completely different. And I just felt kind of an alien uh, or black sheep. And Jesus met me as a teenager, trying to find belonging, trying to find where I fit in the world. And I just was kind of on fire for the Lord. Ended up going to... Was this in high school, Nij? Yeah, 16-year-old. Six, yeah, in high school. And I, I wanted to go to Moody Bible Institute. Uh, I like telling one of my good friends who teaches at Moody that I was wanting to go there. My parents wouldn't let me because they thought... It was a cult. They thought I was crazy. And so I went to Miami University of Ohio, um, where my brother went, and I got interested in campus ministries, Campus Crusade for Christ, and uh, Navigators. I did some missions work. And then I was really passionate about going to seminary, not because I wanted to be a Bible scholar. I didn't even know such things existed. But how'd you know about seminary? Did you, 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 so, you were, were you noticing so, that your pastors or leaders went to seminary? No. Uh, I, I Walter Kaiser, who was the president of Gordon-Conwell, visited my church, my college church. Oh. And I actually wasn't there that week, but my roommate was, and he brought home a catalog. And I started looking through the catalog, and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> All these clerk courses on C.S. Lewis and you know Martin Luther and Bible courses. And I didn't know what ex-Jesus was, but I knew that they studied the Bible. And I really was hungry to study the Bible in depth. And so I applied to different places. Fuller was one of them, but I got a scholarship to Gordon-Conwell. And I went there really for a couple of reasons. One is biblical languages. I really wanted to study the biblical languages. Mm. So Bill Mounts was there. Gary Pratico was there. Um, Meredith Klein. They had, you know, kind of these wow. Doug Stewart taught Aramaic. Um, so I went there for that. And then also an emphasis on discipleship. Robert Coleman, I don't know if you know who that is, but Master Plan of Evangelism. Uh, which crusade, if you're in crusade, everybody read Master Plan, this little booklet. And then biblical theology, just want to study. I read, I remember reading the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Yeah. With Stuart and Fee. Fee was at Gordon-Conwell, but then went to Regent. Stuart was still there. It's like in how many printings has that been in? I don't know, a lot. It's been around for a long time. So I went there really just to study the Bible and discern what's next. I wasn't thinking of the pastorate because I didn't really grow up in the church I was thinking more like parachurch, like crusade, navigators, university, something like that. But it really came out of a hunger and longing to learn, to study not scripture. necessarily with a clear aim in, at, at the end no. of it. No, not at all. Um, I didn't know anything about denominations. I didn't know anything about what it took to be a pastor. But having gone to a you know non-Christian university, I kind of didn't imagine myself teaching in a Christian university. And... Uh, my second year of seminary, I got to TA for Greek. I had taken classical Greek in college, and so I tested out of Greek. And I, in seminary, I got to take, I got to teach Greek, and I just fell in love with teaching. Hmm. Just absolutely fell in love with coming alongside pastors, coming alongside people in seminary, teaching in a way that was interesting, creative. Just the, the the discipline of it, and assigning homework, and reflecting on having read a hundred pages or whatever. I got a chance to do some more adjunct teaching at Gordon-Conwell. So I, I was just hooked on the idea of being in a spiritual environment, academic environment, teaching, 
um that was the beginning of it that was you know um i just i found my people the seminary is my people and i just loved the idea of kind of discipleship in the context of kind of the the academic structures yeah were there any significant people along that journey that really kind of helped you get a sense that you wanted to actually continue on as an academic for sure yeah 100 um i would say doug stewart uh, you know i just pulled some uh letters paper letters out of you know the archives the other day and doug stewart wrote some really encouraging letters for me mm. on just my gift you know my gifting my knowledge um my discipline uh roy champa i don't know if you know roy at samford beeson but New Testament scholar, also really encouraging. I was his TA for a while. Catherine Krager, that's a whole nother story. I think I heard a little bit about that story. Yeah, who's the founder. Yeah, yeah, the founder of Christian Biblical Equality. At that time, I was, was still kind of in the Piper Grudem camp. Oh, and she oh, reached out to me and she said, would you like to be my TA? And I said, yes. And we started a friendship um, and she helped me rethink some of these issues. Yeah, those were those were big. Um, Scott Haifman was there and he wasn't a huge mentor, but he did nudge me to go to the UK. Hmm. He went to Germany and he's like, no, you should go to the UK. Germany was too hard. Um, and so I ended up going to the UK. Before we move on, to, I just wanted because you talked about how you really wanted to learn Greek and, mm -hmm. and the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic. So I think sometimes people don't know why that matters, why that's important. I mean, not everyone will do that. And yeah. even seminary students may not get the very firm grasp of the original languages with like tools, classes and, and things like that. But how do you explain to people why it's so helpful and important to learn Greek and Hebrew, for example? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the first thing I tell people is the English translations we have are great. <laughs> I'm on the committee for the New Living Translation and I love it. So I don't want to instill in anybody a sense of suspicion or skepticism about English translations. At the same time, uh, there's an old saying, and you may know this, it's Italian, traditore, traditore, which means translators are liars. <laughs> and uh, that, that essentially means a translation is filtered through a person. And that person is constantly making decisions about what to reveal or communicate to the, to the end user. That's just the nature of Bible translation is um, you just have to make decisions. So let me give an example. I'm on this committee with the New Living Translation and they're creating an Italian version of the New Living Translation. So they're negotiating the Italian language, the Greek, and the English New Living Translation. And I'm one of the consultants working with the Italian translators. And there's just a, a massive amount of negotiation. What's going to make sense in Italian? What's going to be confusing? What is still faithful to the Greek? And so um, Walter Kaiser, I mentioned earlier, he used to say reading the Old Testament in English is like paraphrasing poetry. Hmm. You'll understand the meaning, but you're going to miss hmm. a lot of the artistry. And it's the same way with Greek as well. Um, you know, it's kind of like, Jeanette, it's kind of like when I watched the movie, The Hunger Games. Which I have um, seen with my teen. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like it captures very well the books. Uh, hmm. So often when you're watching Harry Potter, you know, or Lord of the Rings, in one way, it is the book. In another way, it's not, right? It's condensed. It's interpreted. And so I like to tell people watching the movie is an invitation to read the book. Yeah. I love the English translations we have. At the same time, if you're going to be a pastor, I feel like, and you're going to take responsibility for a church, you're going to preach God's word, 
I know not every single human being, every pastor can learn Greek and Hebrew, but there's just so much there in the Greek text, like wordplay, parallelism, thematic stuff, stuff built on, you know, uh, there's just a lot of artistry to the words that you just can't capture in English. And I think it slows the reader down to acknowledge, gosh, you come with wonder and curiosity, humility. Yes. Just reading it, scroll, you know, reading it on a screen, scrolling so quickly, it forces you to slow down and to really delve deeper. And it's, it's hard work, but I think like you Mm -hmm. said, for preachers and teachers, especially it's also, it it opens up the depths um, and the breadth of scripture in ways that it's really hard to do in just one language. English. Absolutely. And also, and you know this, that there are some words that actually we can't translate in English because yeah. we don't have the exact same word. So in Galatians, for example, Paul talks about the law as a pedagogos. Yeah. And a pedagogos is not a word that we have. It means a like household a slave that mm-hmm. is also a tutor, a nanny, a disciplinarian, a protector. It, and so it's kind of interesting to look at the English translations, disciplinarian, tutor, teacher guide you know it doesn't do it justice but you try but you try to find a word that makes sense but it's just limiting yeah it's it's adequate but it's you know for for a preacher uh or a bible study teacher um you kind of want to know all the dirty details of what the greek or hebrew is you know the mysteries or the complexities yeah one of my greek professors uh he was saying you guys when you learn greek you're in, you're in elementary Greek here, right? So don't just go to the pulpit and start spewing out Greek terms as to as to show off <laughs> no. how smart you are. You know, that's not the point, right? No. And I think that too is the art of doing the, the deeper study, word study, learning the language, for example, but not necessarily for it to just be presented raw at the at the pulpit. There is Absolutely. that work of of the pro the process for the preacher. Mm-hmm. The teacher to undergo, not just to present. And I think that's what you can learn also in seminary, right? To learn not just what we are learning, what scripture is saying, but how to communicate that, how to convey that. And I think you help us do that well with like your introduction to Philippians. It's really sure. a guide that um, helps students and teachers alike. So, hey, I'm Daniel Lee the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center. I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support Centering, please visit fuller.edu slash giveaac. Again, that link is fuller.edu slash giveaac. Thank you for listening. Can you share, you know, you talked about, uh, was it Tredatore, that Italian (laughs) word, about how every translation is filtered through a person. And yes, indeed. I mean, that is a presupposition I hold. And it's true. Uh, but how about you? Then can you speak about how you, as in your own social location as an Indian American biblical scholar, who you are impacts how you interpret, how you read? And you could talk about the NLT translation committee that you're on, or even a specific text that might, how your particular ethnic background shapes 
or informs the way you read a text or the questions you bring to it? Yeah, I'm, thanks for the question. I'm sure you'll resonate with some of this. In some ways, I'm not very Asian or Indian because I never lived uh, in India. But having immigrant parents come here and, and naturalize, but also retain their language and much of their culture, I think one way that's really impacted me is thinking about the way that Asian Americans negotiate two worlds on a constant basis. So we're negotiating the world of our relatives, our ancestors, our, our parents. And then we also negotiate, you know, kind of the quote unquote American world. Obviously my parents are part of the American world, but but kind of white culture or kind of normative culture around us. My parent, you know, the town I grew up in is a very rural town. So not a lot of diversity. And so what that makes me think of is kind of the, the constant desire to please or to to be respectful to both elements. I think I've been watching the show Blackish. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. I, lo I love the show. And even though it's black culture and not Asian culture, there's so many similarities because this father is trying to hold on to the best of kind of his black heritage while living in an affluent white culture. And he's in kind of white collar work. Um, with mostly white people. And so he's, you know, I, I, I feel very similar and he's trying to pass down a lot of black culture to his children who are growing up in kind of a very white private school environment. And I feel similar in some ways in my children because my wife is Caucasian and, you know, our kids are, you know, mixed and trying to navigate all of that with them. And I don't speak Hindi and how do I pass it on? So how does that help me study the Bible? You know, I think of something like the household codes. Mm. Even though the household codes, like in Ephesians, Colossians, First Peter, you know, wives be submissive and slaves and this and that, much of our initial reaction is repulsion. You know, this is uh, heavy-handed, it's hierarchical, you know, and all this stuff. Totally. You know, there are a lot of things off-putting to me about it. At the same time, I kind of get it mm -hmm. as an Asian American because Asian culture, at least the the the, the parts that I've been a part of is, is very stratified. It's, it's very hierarchical. And so I'm constantly trying to negotiate that when I'm visiting my family, visiting relatives. For example, we have a tradition of touching the feet of our, of our older relatives as a sign of respect, um, you know, trying to negotiate some of that. So when I think of the household codes, there, there's a famous debate, which you're familiar with, called the uh, Elliot Balch debate, uh -huh. which is raising the question in first peter totally raising the question are the household codes subversive you know they kind of have these hidden codes that are trying to actually subvert the thing in speaking of it or are they accommodationistic where they're just you know christians trying to fit in to have respect in wider society i think it's messy in the same way it is for a lot of asian americans you know i just recently watched ms marvel uh which is a great uh asian uh i think pakistani uh, influenced TV show where this you know young girl is trying to negotiate her Pakistani family while also trying to be a normal teenager. Again, totally resonate with that. So I see the household codes as living in that messy space of not completely bucking or chucking the structures as they exist uh, while also trying to infuse it with something else. That's just all too familiar to me, Jeanette. I'm sure it's familiar to you as well. Yeah, like like First Peter, since we're going there, you know, yeah. like the the, the, the addressees, particularly slaves and wives, those who are in more subordinated positions, they have mm -hmm. to multiple, they have to negotiate multiple commitments mm -hmm. to their 100%. spouses or masters, 
to their coworkers and and family while upholding their commitment to Christ and the and the the family of God. And it's not like an one one size fit all approach. There's a lots of nuance that the author is willing to hold in different mm-hmm. strategies, right? Do what you can insofar as it is possible. Um, and so I think that it that negotiation or that hybrid existence That's and right. that not, not being able to not be either or both and to hold mm-hmm. that it's not just being uh, indecisive it's actually a state of being that is a requirement this to to survive and navigate different households different values different cultures cultural you know systems at the same time and i i think i do resonate with what you're saying that you as an asian american are doing we're doing that all the time even yeah. though our situation differs in, in, with that in first peter you know you talked about your background and some of your mentors and your educational experience and growing up in Ohio. And I wonder when did you become, oh, and you talked about your, your this hunger arose in you to study biblical languages, to get biblical theology, go to seminary, which you didn't mm-hmm. know much about. When, was there a point when you started to hunger for non-white voices mm-hmm. in, in the guild, in the church, um, when you became more critically conscious of your racial ethnic identity Mm-hmm. And even embracing that in all of its complexities. And when can you talk about that for us? Yeah, you know, the for the formative period of my, you know, kind of theological studies, um, I think I tried to suppress or minimize my difference from, you know, the people around me, because that was just what what the professors looked like. The professors were predominantly white. We had, Paul Lim was on our faculty at the time. You probably know Paul, but yeah, yeah. Um, but he left and he was in a different field as than I was. But you know, I kind of always felt like I was part. Uh, I was on the outside, looking into the guild for you know seven eight years of kind of the formative years of my seminary, even my PhD program, which we had all white professors in biblical studies. I remember we had a conference with Duke and Duke professors came over. The first thing they said was, where are the women and minorities on the faculty? That was a tough, that was a tough uh, word to hear from them. I, I would say actually, and you could probably resonate with this. It was actually when I started teaching at Seattle Pacific. Hmm. Uh, I, sp- I spent my first few years, couple years of my career teaching at South Pacific, which is very conscious of who we are and our embodiedness, our culture, heritage. I think that's where it became more normal for me to to kind of come out of my shell and say, okay, this is important. This is a part of who I am. People like Bo Lim helped me yeah. with that. Um, Billy Vo and and uh, other folks there. You know, the faculty as a whole. Uh, Brenda Brenda Salter McNeil came just SPU at the time. Good folks over there at SPU. <clears throat> Wonderful. And a great Asian uh, American ministry and community there. I would say in terms of me embracing it as, as a leader in this area, I would say a lot of it happened by the fact that I'd go to conferences and women and people of color would just kind of gravitate to me like a magnet. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's not, it's not because I'm smart or anything like that. It's just because there's this comfortability, mm-hmm. you know, the sense of, okay, this is another person that's not part of the norm or doesn't fit kind of the, you know, the white majority. Um, and just people felt comfortable talking to me. And I started to realize um, there's a ministry here um, that I need to, to be responsive to and an opportunity, as you know, the guild is rapidly changing. Two of the three or four editors I, I'm, I commonly work with are women, Anna Gissing, 
Katya Kovret, you know, things are changing uh, in the guild uh, away from kind of the white male normativity. So I feel a real burden and calling to be leading in the series that I edit. Uh, I edit three or four different commentary series and, and just being really mindful of, okay, I kind of see myself as an underdog. I know that's strange maybe to hear me say as a mid-career person, but I kind of see myself as an underdog and my white male mentors that I, mostly the only people that I had as professors, they really took a chance on me. Mm. My writing was terrible in the early part of seminary. That's another subject. And, and so I kind of want to see the people that are maybe not standing right in the front. Mm. You know, metaphorically, I want to see those people and say, okay, I see something in you. I see potential. And, and in, in my book, Prepare, Prepare, Succeed, Advance, I have a chapter on supporting uh, pe women and people of color in the guild. So the I collected, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I collected stories from colleagues. You might've been one of them, but I collected stories from a number of colleagues. And I know this wouldn't surprise you, but I was shocked by oh. some of the stories that I heard. You know, we, we, we have a black uh, colleague and just people speaking in very condescending ways to him and asking him, do you really have a PhD or do they give it to you because you're black or, you know, things like that. I mean, just shocking. And I just felt after, especially after that, and that was about 2018, mm -hmm. I just felt like, gosh, I got to step up and, and be more supportive and, and do what I can to help others. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Do you sometimes feel like resistant to having to represent Asian Americans as a biblical scholar? Like for me, I embrace that. I really do. Like, I think like I, I, from early on in my academic studies, even when it wasn't encouraged or supported, I was like, you know what, I'm committed to the church at large, but to the Asian American church um, and, and to doing scholarship that really brings to the center minoritized voices mm -hmm. uh, and, and articulating perspective and point of view that does not try to minimize yeah. um, one's Asian American identity as interpreters of the text. But not everyone necessarily as an Asian American biblical scholar sees their role or their, you know, feels that that's what they want to do. And I recognize that. So mm -hmm. yeah. How, how have you negotiated that personally? I think early in my career, which was kind of in my less enlightened days, I was resistant because I didn't want to be put into a box. Mm -hmm. You know, Nijay writes about Asians, you know, Nijay writes about Indians. Um, so I didn't do much writing on it on, at all until the last five, five or six years. And even then it's been mostly in blog form. Uh, or or short essay form rather than books. I'll, I'll tell you a couple stories. Uh, one is just the influence that Roger Nam has had on me, who's a professor at Emory, who's He's my He's part dean. of this series as well. He's great. And he, okay, I hope I'm okay sharing this, but uh, his perspective has helped me of kind of when people say, well, you represent this. He, what he does is he builds social capital and then he can spend it any way he wants later on. So a lot of it is building friendships and relationships. So let's say someone who is just asking you to just do something kind of almost in a token way. Oh, yeah. Will you speak yeah. on this? You have to be careful. I don't want to be tokenized. At the same time, will it get me into a conversation where I can make change? Mm -hmm. Will it get me into conversation? Or is it just sort of someone's checking a box? If it's going to be in a conversation where nobody's really speaking into that, you and I have a little bit of different educational backgrounds. I've been kind of center evangelicalism for a very long time. 
And so I'm in a place when people aren't really having these conversations. And so I'm kind of welcomed in as kind of almost a white evangelical. And then I have an opportunity then to be able to uh, have influence in those mm -hmm. circles as a trusted insider, so to speak. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I'm, I'm trusted because I'm kind of they see my track record publishing with Zondervan or InterVarsity. You know, I want to sense in most cases that the person that's asking me is legitimately interested in what I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just making the picture look, oh, yeah. you know, you nice. Do. Yeah. I've come to sense that there's a good radar for that. Yeah. You're very, I would say, passionate and creative in your work and very productive. How do you stay, how do you keep the flame going? What are some practices or like postures that help you stay in it in a way that isn't so depleting? Great question. I mean, if I'm talking to early career people, I'm sure you give this advice. You can't be too picky. <laughs> you have to do whatever comes your way. And sometimes you don't want to do it. Um, and, and, you know, I was asked to write for the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, second edition. I was asked to write on fasting. I don't know anything about fasting in the Gospels, but I'm not going to say no to Joel Green. He was very gracious to ask me. It's hard me. to say no to Joel Green. I That's right. So early career, you kind of don't have a choice and you just get energized by the idea that someone knows who you are and has asked you to do something important. Um, you know, now that I'm kind of mid-career, I think my passion is I can be picky. I can, I can go to a publisher and say, hey... I've looked into it. Not a lot of people are writing on this. Um, you know, coming back to my book, 50 New Testament Words of Life, you know, I'm just really interested in how the gospel speaks to real life, friendship, mm -hmm. illness, growing old, business, work, play, leisure, shopping. Anytime I can get at that somehow in my writing, I'm going to. I'm, I'm writing a commentary on Philippians and Philemon. I think what energizes me is the relation between theology and social economics. Hmm. How, how our theology shapes how we look at people and their relative importance. Okay. And so looking at texts like Philemon, I spent a lot of time thinking about how Paul is, even though he doesn't come right out and say, hey, be free, and I don't think he's calling for freedom there. We can talk about that. But, but the way he's moving the pieces, you know, the furniture around the room, in terms of how we look at people, that just gives me a lot of energy. I could spend a lot of time writing on kind of human dignity, human worth, human value in God's eyes and how the apostles navigate that. No, that's really helpful. It's, it's, is there other things like, do you work out? Do you watch? It sounds like you <laughs> you're talking about TV. practicals. No, no, no. This is actually practical. It's very, that what you're sharing is really helpful. It's a way yeah. you frame and understand sure. your work and your audience and what, how it lands. Yeah. But like just practically speaking too, what do you do to stay healthy? Yeah. Patrick Schreiner used to live here in Portland. He left me uh, for somewhere else, but uh, we, we would the talk about got, the rain got to him. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe the sports, but um, you know, we've talked about before cause we're about the same age, same life stage. When you start teaching, you kind of teach safely in the sense that you're teaching in the same way that you're, that your teachers taught. And Patrick and I got to this place where we're like, what if we do it differently? You know, what if, what if we do it completely differently? And so I'm, I'm, what energizes my writing, I'm getting back to my writing, is some experimental pedagogy. 
So honestly, you know, sometimes I'll be working on a book chapter and I'll just buck my lecture and I'll just read it to my students and just get their feedback. And it'll be generally related, you know, New Testament, you know, but, you know, I write for these students that I teach. 99% of what I write is for these students. So it's not that strange. So sometimes I'll just read, you know, something I'm writing to them, or I'll just say, can I just talk through a book chapter I'm working on, get your feedback. The students love it. I benefit from it. So, so you know, I don't see, I don't have bo a box for, mm -hmm. for teaching and a separate box for scholarship. I see. The boxes spill into each other. And that, that, that's a time saver. <laughs> mm, that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, lastly, what advice can you give to our listeners to help them in their study of scripture, to delve deeper from wherever they're at? Yeah. Learning Greek would be great if they could do it. But, but, you know, if, if they're Fuller listeners, has Greek, yeah, as does Northern. Yep. Um, yeah. But, but, but general things uh, that you can do. I'm surprised when I hear people say that they don't like paraphrases like the message, New Living Translation, Common English Bible, um, looser translations. I feel like reading a variety of translations really gets your brain moving in terms of not being locked into one text that helps Bible study a lot. You know, since some of our listeners may, you know, be, be Asian reading the Bible in different language, I do it in Greek, but if you could do it in Korean or Chinese or, or, or Cantonese or Japanese or Mandarin, do it. French, German, my German is rusty, but my French is okay. Um, reading in a different language, I think is great. I mentioned Patrick, he's recommended listening to the Bible on audio and how that hits differently, especially if you have different voices. Yeah. So a female voice or a voice with an accent other than the American accent. Um, those all hit differently. Some of those things I think help refresh Bible study. That's really, really helpful. And Nijay, I thank you for your magnanimous spirit. <laughs> um, I think one of the things I really appreciate about you is you really try to celebrate, hey, going back to Philippians, yeah. uh, you really try to celebrate the work of others in a way mm -hmm. that's kind of odd sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I think academics can be kind of insecure yeah, folks yeah. wanting to kind of never feeling like they're doing enough and producing enough, but you really go out of your way to celebrate the work of others and to let them know how it's impacted their students and your own scholarship. And I, I hoped that that kind of magnanimous generosity and spirit is something that catches on like wildfire. Yes. <laughs> in, the, in the church and in the academy. So thank you so much for joining us and for your time and expertise. Well, you've been a good colleague. So thank you, Jeanette. I'll see you around, EJ. Thanks. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.